You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. If you have your Bibles with you, please open to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. The theme for the weekend that we've been doing with the youth has been glory days. Uh, the idea that, you know, so often youth is, uh, that, that age is kind of treated as these are your glory days. And yet, uh, there's a far bigger dream that God wants us to live for. There's so much, something, so much greater than just living for our glory, but truly being wrapped up with living for God and his glory. And um, glory is, is really this idea of greatness. And I think we are hardwired to desire greatness. When we go out to eat, we don't usually ask the server what's the most mediocre thing on the menu. Uh, we want to know what's great. When I come here to, to you know, Frisco, I want to know where's the best place to get barbecue. Don't tell me these mediocre joints. I want the fast food place. I want to know where the best place is to get some good brisket. Which after yesterday, I got to say it's Aaron Paul. I mean, that was incredible, man. That was just holy smokes. But we want, we want greatness. When we go out to see a movie, we don't want to see something so-so. Right? We, we want to see something great. When we cheer for our sports teams, and I won't say any more about that, but we hope they perform great. Right? We want them to do well. We want greatness. And you know, I think back to when I graduated from college, and we have all those kinds of great dreams, right? Dreams about how we want to have this, this great life. And then life begins to settle in. Begins to settle in a little bit and it moves from desiring greatness to I just want to survive, you know. And we go to work and we come home exhausted and just we do that the next day after, day after day after day. Or, or, or maybe you're someone who, you know, maybe your wildest dreams have been far surpassed. Maybe you graduate from college with all these hopes and dreams and, and you've actually achieved all of them and more. And you, in the world's eyes, you have achieved a sense of greatness. But how great... How great are those things? I was talking with Craig, and he said in his last sermon on Ecclesiastes, he was talking about how so often we, we chase legacy, but the reality is these legacies that we chase, they just, they fade. They don't last. I recently was having a conversation with a baseball player who was retiring, and as he was thinking about leaving the game, he realized that all of his accomplishments within a few short years won't be remembered by anybody. And it was a real struggle for him. And my encouragement to, to him was, well, don't worry, man, that's all of us. <laughs> How many of you know who your great-great-grandfather was? Not many, right? Maybe, maybe a few of you are getting on Ancestry.com and having some fun with that, but like, you don't really know them. It's not like they've had a, a shaping influence on your life. We are people who are here, and then we're gone, and then we are forgotten. And what's so great about that. I don't need to be starting on a down note, and you're probably wondering why Craig invited me to preach to bring up all these sad things, but I, I think this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 16, I think God wants us to stir our vision for how we can be part of something that is truly great. See, our desire for greatness I don't think is a bad thing. The problem is we just often try to find it in the wrong things. But our desire for greatness is not bad. I believe it's a God-given desire that's meant to point us to him as he invites us to join him in what he's doing in the world. 
Our lives can leave a lasting legacy when we join Jesus in what he is doing. We might not be remembered, but his purpose will be accomplished. And so if we join him in what he's doing, that's how we can be truly part of a legacy that lasts. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, Building a Legacy That Lasts. Building a Legacy That Lasts. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Let's turn our attention to God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. God's word says to us, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Would you bow your head with me in a word of prayer? That God bless the preaching of his word. God, I pray that the word which you've inspired to be written by your Holy Spirit would now, by the same spirit, be illuminated in our hearts. And may we not just understand this text better, but may we see your heart. May we see you through it. Lord, I pray that you would meet us today where we are. But in your love, please don't leave us as we are. Change us more and more into the people you created us to be in Christ. Would you do this for our good and for your glory? In your name we pray. Amen. To help us see what Jesus is saying here, I'd like to split up our study of this text into really three distinct parts. The setting, the confession, and the promise. The setting, the confession, and the promise. And here's where all this is building. I'll, I'll give away the punchline. The big idea of this text is that we can build a lasting legacy by joining Jesus as he builds his church. You, you want to have a lasting legacy? You want to have an impact on the world? Well, we can build a lasting legacy by joining Jesus as he builds his church. Let's consider this as we look at the setting. This question that Jesus is asking about who do people say that I am, this is the first time that he's opened up in the Gospel of Matthew a dialogue about his identity. Throughout the Gospel, people have been trying to figure out who Jesus is. There's been the crowds and the religious leaders, but Jesus, up until this point, has not seemed to be overly concerned about what others think about him. But here in Caesarea Philippi, in this setting, he turns to his disciples and asks, who do you believe that I am? And both the where and the when of this setting, the location and the timing are very significant. As Jesus has been traveling around Israel, he has yet to be in a place like Caesarea Philippi. This town had a sordid history. It was the religious center for the worship of a god named Pan. Pan means across all or any, every, anything. It, it was a town where you could worship anything and everything you wanted. And pretty much anything you wanted to do went. And so it was a place to, to go if you wanted to act in any kind of perversion. 
It was a place where little children were often sold for horrific practices. When you can worship anything and do anything, well, the human heart can devise all kinds of evil. This is why just follow your heart is terrible advice. Because the human heart can often be a dark place. When the Romans conquered this territory in 3 BC, they gave this land to the Jewish king, Herod. And he named it Caesarea Philippi in honor of Caesar. And the Jewish king, Herod, built a temple in that place where not Yahweh could be worshipped, but where the emperor could be worshipped. And so the Jewish leader, who was supposed to be faithful to the one true God and worship no other God but him, constructed a temple for the worship of man. And so this town was known as, as a town that stood for apostasy, denying the truth of God. But what this town was perhaps most famous for was a cave, a cave that had a pool in it that was so deep that it was said it could reach down into the underworld. And people would go into this cave and they would give sacrifices, sometimes even including child sacrifices. And this cave was called the Gates to Hades or the Gates to Hell. Caesarea Philippi is a dark city. It was a place where evil was so present that you could feel it. And it is not by mistake that Jesus is giving the first announcement of who he is as the Christ the savior of the world, it's not by mistake that he's doing it in this place. In this place, which is literally called hell, this is where Jesus is having his name proclaimed to show that there is nothing that is beyond his redemptive power and the light of the world does not run scared from any kind of darkness. And we need to hear this in our lives. Often we can be trapped as we feel that there are just dark places, that we believe in Jesus, but, but can he really meet me here? Can he really meet me in this place? Often we can live with hidden shame that we never talk about. Maybe it is sin that we are currently engaged in, or maybe it's regrets from our past that we carry around like scars on our souls that no one else knows about, but we know about. Friends, we can't miss what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not scared to go into dark places. He does not shy away from them. He came to redeem them. Listen, Jesus is not surprised by our sin. He already gave his blood for it. And so our sins do not disqualify us from receiving God's grace. No, they're the very reason that Jesus came for us. And so we should not stay hidden and trapped in struggle and shame, but we can confess what we've been living for. We can walk into the light. When we, we empower our shame, when we remain silent about our sin, but we experience the cleansing power of God's forgiveness when we confess our sins and believe that Jesus is who he truly says he is, the Savior of the world. The one who promises that when we confess our sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I just want to say this, that I know, if you're new here, I know this is a church where there is grace for confession. This is a church where people are not scared to get involved in the messy, gritty, dark stuff of life. This, this is a place where you can come clean. And you can be honest here. And you will experience the mercy and love and forgiveness of Jesus embodied by the pastors and embodied by the people. It's not by chance that Jesus is declaring his identity in this place. And it's not by chance when Jesus is declaring his identity. 
Again, up until this moment, Jesus had never before asked his disciples who they thought he was. But what has he been doing throughout this gospel? Well, in Matthew chapter 9, he heals a paralytic and raises a dead girl to life. In Matthew chapter 12, he heals a man with a crippled hand and drives out demons from those who are possessed. In Matthew chapter 14, he feeds 5,000 hungry people, and people start to get healed just by touching his garment. In Matthew chapter 15, he feeds 4,000 hungry people, heals the daughter of a Canaanite woman who is an enemy of Israel but a friend to Jesus. And so what has Jesus been doing so far in this gospel? He hasn't been saying who he is, but chapter after chapter after chapter, he's been at work doing good works. He's been healing and rescuing and restoring so that people could know what he was like before he asked them to say who he is. See, often God will save us from some things. Often God will bring us through some stuff before he calls on us to confess him as our Savior. And I have to wonder here, here this morning, who's been brought through some stuff? Who, who should have been dead from a drug overdose? Who, who should have done some things that, that you regret, but you've been spared the consequences of those choices? Who here has experienced some health challenges, but you still woke up this morning and you're here or you're watching online by the grace of God? Who here has experienced so much grief? that you've thought, I'm not sure how I'm going to make it through this day, and yet you're here today. <laughs> how many of you have lost almost all you've had to find out that Jesus is almost all, he is all you've ever needed? I'm not sure what you've been through, but I know that you're here, friend, without knowing any of your stories. I know that the reason for all of your stories, you're here because God has brought you here. I don't know what you've been through, but I know it's been God who's been bringing you through. And he's been at work in your life, and through many dangers, toils, and snares, you have already come. T'was grace that brought you safe thus far, and it'll be grace that brings us home. We've been here by the gracious hand of God, and he's been saving you and sparing you and showing you what he's like so that you might have something to say about who he is. God brings us through some stuff. Not so that just stays with us, but so that it then spreads out from us as we declare his identity. And we say, let me just not tell you about who Jesus is. Let me tell you about what he's like. And uh, I know what he, who he is because I know what he is like. He's been moving in my life. Maybe you're here and you've not yet confessed Jesus to be your savior. But you know you've been brought through some stuff. I truly believe God has you here today because today is the day of your salvation. And God wants you to know that what you've come through has been all roads that are leading you to him. And I pray you might have questions today. You might have a lot of doubts and things holding you back. But if you can't deny what you've been brought through, friend, put your faith in Jesus today. He's the one who has brought you through it all. It's not by chance that Jesus is asking this question where he did and when he did. He is teaching us something about who he is through the setting. And he's teaching us something through the confession. Through the confession. Let's look at that. Jesus asks who do you say that I am? And Peter, now at this point called Simon, Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is an incredible statement. Consider what he is saying. The Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. This anointed one is the person who God promised in Genesis chapter 3.15 would crush Satan beneath his feet. 
He's the one who God promised to King David who would set up the throne of David forever and rule as the eternal, all-powerful, benevolent king for all eternity. He's the chain breaker that Isaiah prophesied about. The one who would bring the very peace of God to our troubled and distressed souls. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who, who is said who would bring God, the, bring the earth to love God, the power of God and salvation to God. And when he came, the world would never be the same. And Simon looks at Jesus and says, I believe this is you. I believe you are this promised one. I believe you are the Christ. Christ, the Son the sun is another rich phrase, pregnant with Old Testament imagery. So Psalm chapter 2 says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possession. Simon's saying, you're this son. He is the son who Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government should be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Priests. Simon is saying this is you. You are the Christ. You are the son promised from long ago who had established God's rule and reign forever. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter is identifying that this is no created God. This is not the God of anyone's own understanding made up by the smallness of our minds. No, this is the living God, the God who was alive before there was life. The Bible starts by saying, in the beginning, God. And there's no origin story given for God. We're not told where he came from because he has always been. God does not come from anything, but everything comes from him. He's the God who brought existence into existence. He's the living God who brings forth all life. And so this is a God that we don't get to define, but who has the authority to define us? Because our very life comes from him. And yet when Simon Peter is calling Jesus the living God, he is speaking more than he at this moment knew. He knew that Jesus was the son of the true God who is alive as opposed to the false idols that weren't real, that weren't alive. That was true, but there was a far even deeper truth that he was proclaiming that he did not yet know. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what did Simon Peter do? He denied him and fled. He ran scared because he thought Jesus had failed. What he didn't realize is that Jesus is the living God. And so even though Jesus died on the cross, three days later he rose from the dead because you can't take the life of the living God. And the hope of our salvation, friends, is that Jesus' tomb is empty, which proves that his death is enough to cover our debt of death. That's why he's no longer dead. He is the living God whose resurrection proves the validity of the salvation he offers for any who have faith in him, and he is living right now in heaven, where we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, he is living to intercede for us. Jesus, friend, right now in this moment, is praying for you. He is praying for those whom he has redeemed. He is championing our cause. He's pleading our forgiveness, and he's pouring out grace to empower us to live for him. And this is our hope that whatever we're going through, we're going to make it through. Why? Because Jesus is praying for us. 
Hopefully people in the church are praying for us. Hopefully other people are drawing alongside us. But here's what you need to know. More than any other person, you have the son of the living God praying for you. And he never sleeps nor slumbers. And God the Father always listens to the prayers of his son. He ever lives above for me to intercede. He pours effectual prayers. He strongly pleads for me. Jesus is the living God who is living to intercede for us before the throne of God, making sure that all his redeemed will make it home to be with him. And so Simon makes this confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, but I'm about to give you a name change. He says, I'm going to call you Peter. And Peter means rock. Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. Now, does this mean that Peter himself is the rock? Well, how good a rock was Peter? <laughs> You're laughing, so I guess you know his story. There, there was times when he was sturdy to be sure, standing up at Pentecost, right, preaching to thousands. This is also the guy who would deny Jesus at his trial, who would show up in Galatia and who would withdraw from non-Jewish people and lead others astray. And Paul would have to rebuke him and say, you're living out of step with the gospel. This is the guy who at one point would tell Jesus, hey, stop talking about all this suffering stuff. Let's just skip that part. And Jesus would have to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. Peter sometimes could be as solid as a rock, but also he could sometimes be as unstable as a pile of mud. And so the good news is that there's a better rock than Peter. It is the rock of what Peter is confessing, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. What makes the church the church is who we believe Jesus to be. Jesus is our foundation. He is our unifying power who brings us together. Right, that word church, it means assembly or gathering. And in this world, there's all kinds of things that people gather around. Political parties, social causes, ethnic groups. But what makes the church the church is that we gather around Jesus. And so we should not be a gathering of those who vote the same politically. We should not be a gathering of those who have the same ethnicity. We, shame on us if we ever segregate ourselves into this is a Republican church or this is a Democratic church or this is a black church or a white church or an Asian church or, or, or a Latino church. Shame on us if we ever gather around anything else other than being Christ church. Right? Because it is on Christ the solid rock we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. We come together based upon our common confession. The confession that Peter made 2,000 years ago is the rock that the church is still to be on. And I just want to encourage you, Christ, Grace Church Frisco. We are living in a day and time where people are leaving the church for all kinds of reasons. Oh, they, don't, they said too much about this social issue. They said too little. They said too much about this political thing. They said too little. And there's all kinds of dis disagreements, right? We just live in this very charged environment. Friends, may we remember that we can have all kinds of different opinions about different things. But what unites us is not how we think about those things. What unites us is not who we vote for. What unites us is the king that we all have in common. Amen. Ultimately, at the end of the day, for a Christian, I love this country. I'm so grateful to live here. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm not someone who believes that I live in a republic or a democratic republic. We believe in a monarchy, don't we? Yeah, right? right? We, we believe that there's a king who rules the universe. And so, hey, listen, like, vote for who you think should be in the White House, but let's not forget who rules over God's house. Yeah. Right? Like, 
We gather under the banner of Jesus. We've looked at the confession. We looked at the setting. Now quickly we're going to finish by looking at the promise. There's a promise that Jesus makes for anyone who is willing to build on this foundation. The promise that Jesus makes is that not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against his church as we build ourselves on the foundation of him. How powerful is this promise that he's making in a town that was literally known for having the gates of hell? Jesus here is not just being theoretical. He is saying that even the evil you see around you will not be greater than what I'm going to do through you. And there's a broader application here. This is not only a reference to the town that Jesus is in, but the eternal reality of hell that so many of us face. The Bible talks candidly about hell as a place we go when we refuse to bend our knee to God. To choose to live life on earth without surrendering to the true God, eventually God will give us over to that choice for all eternity. Hell is the place where people finally get to go their own way forever. But the horror of hell is that we find out that every good that we experienced on earth came from the gracious hand of God. And so when we finally pull away from God's hand, all that is left is the darkest parts of our life stretching on for all eternity. But Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. By prevail, he, he, he means more than just withstanding attacks from the forces of evil. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a gate attack anyone. Right? No, no what, what's being pictured here is, is the gates are, are those of prison gates. They are holding people in. The idea is that there are souls who've been captured by the hellish desire to live life on their own terms. But when Jesus is proclaimed by the church, Jesus' promise is that our proclamation will bring about the decimation of the kingdom of hell. There might be gates that are shut against God. There might be people who are so closed off that we think they will never bend their knee to Christ. But the proclamation of Jesus is like a battering ram. And every time Christ is proclaimed, it's another thrust against the gates of hell. And those gates will fall to the greater power of Jesus as souls continue to be saved through faith in him. Every time people put their faith in Jesus, it's a realization of this promise. Hell had thought it had a soul secured behind its gates. But the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ and the proclamation of him by his church. And so we need to understand that when Jesus is saying that they will not prevail, this is not the storyline of Rocky 1. In Philadelphia, all roads eventually lead back to Rocky. Um, <laughs> but you've, you've seen that movie out here too, right? Okay. Uh, in Rocky 1, he just wants to be able to go the distance, right? He wants to be able to stay in the ring with the champ and go 15 rounds to prove that, you know, I'm not a nobody, right? And I remember the first time I watched Rocky, and this is probably blasphemy to say, so what happens in Frisco stays in Frisco. Uh, but I was disappointed when he didn't win in the end. Like, he went the distance, like, that's nice, but left me with a feeling of being unsatisfied. Like, I want to see a victory, you know? Well, the storyline here is not Rocky 1, where Jesus is just in the ring, just hoping to go 15 rounds with hell. That, that's not what he means by prevailing. No, this is not Rocky 1. This is Rocky 4. Y'all remember Rocky 4, right? There was Ivan, this great hulking, undefeated Russian that everyone was scared to even fight. But then out comes Rocky, and he's, like, training in the snow. He's, you know, flipping logs and getting strong now, right? Like this whole thing, right? And then he gets in the ring, and he does more than just go the distance. 
he knocks the giant out. And this is what Jesus is promising his church. We're not just going to withstand everything that hell throws against us. We're not just going the distance. No, we're going to see God's victory. We might take some hits. We might feel some body blows. But no matter what comes against us, we're still going to be standing at the end. And by the grace of God, there will be more people standing with us who we could never imagine putting their faith in Jesus. But they'll be standing with us praising the saving name of Christ. Because when Jesus proclaimed, not even the gates of hell can withstand the power of our sovereign Lord. So as we bring this in for our close friends, Jesus is building his church. And if we want to live truly great lives, if we want to leave a lasting legacy, the greatest thing we can be a part of, the greatest thing we can give our lives to is what Jesus is doing through the gate-smashing, hell-defeating, glory-revealing church. We can build a lasting legacy by joining Jesus as he builds his church, which means that church is not something we should be thinking about as a place that we attend. It's not a spiritual gas station that we go to to fill up our tanks that we can then go about the rest of our life. No, what is happening here, friends, as we gather together and sing God's praises and hear Him proclaim, what is happening here will echo on for eternity. Jesus is building his church, which Revelation tells us he sees as his bride who will be with him forever in heaven. And so everything we do in this life will end with us except for how we build up the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is something that will be enjoyed by God for all eternity. And so building the church is the only thing that we can do in this life that has guaranteed results. Because building this church is what Jesus is doing. And Jesus will get done what he says he will do. He will build his church. But how often we can act like that's not happening. Something I can often hear is that we can feel sometimes like the church is losing ground. We aren't a Christian nation anymore. What's this world coming to? We read the news headlines or scroll through them and anxiety start to grip our hearts. Oh no, what does this mean? What does that mean? And, and all of a sudden we don't begin to pray as much as we used to because we've begun to feel like there's not much point. We don't really share the gospel because we've begun to doubt that it is effective. We compromise biblical teaching, especially around sexual ethics, because it's easier just to blend in and accept new cultural norms. We don't give sacrificially to the support of the local church because we're more concerned about making our life comfortable for ourselves. We don't prioritize gathering as a church. We go occasionally when we feel like it so that we can fit it in, but there's so many other things that we allow to come first. Or we treat the church like something, you know, we order off a fast food menu. Oh, I'll take the music over here, but then I really like the preaching over here. And my kids go to this program over here, and we just spread ourselves out all over the place, being consumers, taking just what we want, instead of builders saying, no, this is where I'm at, and I'm plugging in here, and I'm giving my life to building God's church in this place. Friends, God is going to build his church. That's a promise from Christ, the Son of the living God. The only question is whether he's going to build it through us or in spite of us. Like God does not need our participation in order to accomplish his purpose. He's going to do it. The only question is, are we going to be dead weights that God has to work around? <laughs> or are we going to be people that God is going to do his work through? Yeah. By God's grace, he's been building a church here. Grace Church Frisco for I believe over 18 years. And you've been through some stuff. You've certainly taken some hits. But you're still standing and there's something beautiful taking place here. What Jesus sees as he looks at this church, he sees what he's been doing to see the lost saved, to see lives changed, to see another generation raised up. God's been doing great things at grace. But he isn't done. 
Jesus is still building his church. And so what this should call us to is that if we commit to praying, if you commit to being here, to being present, if you commit to prioritizing fellowship, commit to caring for one another in your small groups or whatever you call those groups of people that meet together in you know, Christian's homes, we call them a million different things, whatever you call them, right? If you commit to doing good to your neighbors in the name of Jesus and sharing the gospel with them, if you commit to giving sacrificially and generously to the church, you know, don't grow fatigued in that. Don't become distracted. Don't begin to live for lesser things. No, commit yourself to that because great things have happened here, but I believe that because of what God has done, what he will do is always better than what has been. And so there's been great days, but there's better days even still ahead because Jesus is still building his church and what will be built is always better than what has has been built. So commit yourself to this. Give yourself to building this church. Join Jesus on what he's doing. What he's doing and what he'll continue to do until he returns. That's how we can be part of a legacy that lasts. Make this your ambition. That you want to get to heaven. And you want to have Jesus say, let me introduce you to this person who came to faith at Grace Church Frisco 50 years after you died. And they don't know your name. They have no idea who you are. But I want to introduce you to them. And I want to show how you've had an impact through them. Imagine Christ bringing that person to you. And then looking you in the eyes and saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Friends, that's a legacy that lasts. That's a life that's worth living for. Give yourself to it for the glory of God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.